Hello and welcome to the long overdue new series of the Rule of Law podcast with Matrix Chambers in association with Prospect Magazine. I'm Richard Hermer. Now we've been planning our relaunch for a fortnight's time with a podcast about the direction of travel of the United Kingdom Supreme Court, followed afterwards with a look at pressing rule of law issues across the globe, including Israel, where hundreds of thousands of people are taking to the streets to protest against Netanyahu's plans to curb the independence of the judiciary. Last week, however, Suella Braverman ripped up our scheduling plans by announcing her illegal migration bill to Parliament, designed, we're told, to put a stop to refugees arriving on our shores on small boats, and more generally, as the Home Secretary actually said in terms to Parliament, to act as a deterrence to the threat of 100 million people coming to our shores. The bill appears to be quite extraordinary in its scope. Any person, whether a refugee fleeing from persecution or not, who arrives here other than through official channels, will be liable to detention, removal to a third country, such as Rwanda, and will be permanently deprived of any future rights to claim British citizenship. The role of the courts to provide independent oversight is also significantly curtailed with ouster clauses, and obligations, be they under the European Convention of Human Rights or the Refugee Convention or to victims of trafficking or modern slavery, are overridden. If ever there was a bill that required immediate dissection on a podcast about the rule of law, this must be it. So here to explain the bill and discuss the implications for the rule of law are Raza Hussein, King's Council of Matrix Chambers. Raza is the country's leading advocate on refugee law and Sheila Reynolds, Head of Asylum Advocacy at Freedom From Torture, who have spearheaded the campaign to protect the rights of refugees in our asylum system against the barrage of legislative attack. Azra and Sheila, thanks so much uh, for joining. Uh, We were together at the end of 2021 when we discussed the Nationality and Borders Bill, and Raza, you described that at the time as the biggest legal assault on refugee law ever. And I'm going to ask you in a moment whether this is worse. But I want to start the discussion, if I can, by providing listeners with a simple explanation of core aspects of the bill and take into account that many people listening won't be lawyers nor experts in refugee law. So, Raza, can I start off with you and just explain what the kind of key measures are in this bill? Sure. I I think um, we can group them into four areas. So the first thing that the bill seeks to do is to trample on refugee law in an even more dramatic fashion than the previous legislation legislation did. And, and it does that by effectively banning claims from almost everyone who comes here as they do now, that is to say, through other countries. And it places a duty on the Secretary of State to remove those people who have made refugee claims but have come here indirectly, broadly speaking. And then it uh, places a duty on the Secretary of State not to consider those claims. So it really is a blanket ban. It really is an evisceration of the right to claim asylum. The second thing it does is trafficking victims. It removes their protection from removal, save in very specified circumstances where there's an ongoing criminal investigation and they're participating in it. It removes the protection that trafficking victims would have uh, from removal 
by again placing a duty on the Secretary of State to remove everyone who's come here indirectly, irrespective of whether they're trafficking victims or, or not. The third thing that it does, and here it tramples on our domestic constitutional arrangements, is to uh, introduce ouster clauses, ousting the jurisdiction of the courts over decisions of the Secretary of State, and in particular over a blanket detention of literally everybody coming, uh, except unaccompanied minors, but literally every, and it removes protections that previously existed for pregnant women and, and unaccompanied minors, but uh, a blanket detention for 28 days, no judicial oversight, retention of habeas corpus, query whether or not they want to narrow down habeas corpus and revert to jurisdictional um, limits that existed in the old law, uh, in older law, I should say. Um, there's also an ouster clause uh, where someone says, look, you're removing me to a third country. Uh, that's contrary to my human rights. It sets up a bespoke right of appeal to the upper tribunal with dramatically accelerated procedures uh, and insulates those decisions from judicial review. And the last thing it does is, is it introduces numerous Henry VIII clauses. Those are, of course, clauses... What are, what are they? Just explain what those are for people who the, don't know. Those are the clauses which enable the executive to amend primary legislation and in effect give the executive the power uh, to make law, which the executive is not permitted to do in our constitutional arrangements other than in the context of colonial law. There's a very famous case, case of proclamations, which establishes that. This has exercised people uh, very significantly. Uh, Lord Judge talked about it. Uh, in recent years, um, it's very suspect constitutionally. And it, it allows the executive to legislate without the need to go back to Parliament. That's exactly. why it's just so staggeringly unconstitutional. Exactly. Can I just come back to that kind of first category that you were talking about in terms of the obligation on the Secretary of State to remove? I mean, that's, that's qualitatively different, isn't it, to simply providing a power to the Secretary of State. This obliges anybody, the Secretary of State, in respect of anybody who enters on a small boat, to be removed. Yes, so, so there's a duty to remove, there's a, and there's a power for unaccompanied children, but when they become 18, there's a duty to remove them as well. The problem that people have raised is, how is this going to work practically, because you're not going to have enough people, enough countries, sorry, to receive people, and so people will go into limbo. Another aspect of the bill is that once you fall foul of these provisions, once you're in the category of people whom the Secretary of State has a duty to remove, you can not only never naturalise as a British citizen, you can never be granted uh, leave to remain. So it creates a colossal uh, class of people in limbo. I'm going to come to the practicalities in a moment, but Sheila, can I turn to you to kind of give us some kind of real real context for this in terms of people arriving on small boats and refugees and you obviously at Freedom From Torture deal with the sharp end of this. You're dealing with people who are escaping because they have been tortured from other countries. 
How real is it to, in the real world, punish either morally or legally people who don't come into this country to claim refugee status on a visa that they've obtained from a British embassy or consulate and on a flight ticket that they've bought? What's the reality for many people who are fleeing persecution? I mean, Richard, like the reality here is that both on a, on a kind of an ethical and practical level, this legislation is has profoundly flawed. I mean, the really, really important kind of question or, or, or fundamental sort of assumption at the heart of this legislation is that the way to stop people coming in small boats is to punish them in order to deter them, right? The, so the deterrence approach is the one that the government is um, persuaded is, is, is going to work. So an understanding of, of why people keep coming is is kind of central to comprehending the failure of this policy, which which isn't a new one, right? Like this is this is not the, something that the Home Secretary has come up with as a novel approach. This is an approach that's been tried by this government, by previous uh, UK governments, by by other um, by other uh, countries, for example, Australia, over many decades, and it hasn't worked. And you know, we we know why it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked because it, it fundamentally misunderstands why people take these dangerous journeys. And Freedom from Torture has has actually published some research recently on this. It's being a burning house, which looked at the reasons why our clients took the kind of journeys, the kind of dangerous journeys they took to reach protection in the UK. What they said about these journeys. What, what reasons they gave for taking them. And the evidence overwhelmingly showed that people were taking these journeys for four main reasons, to join family or community, because as we all know, we're, we're drawn to the security and the support of the family units or the wider community. Secondly, because of familiarity with UK's language, culture and institutions. And that's, you know, it's obvious to say that you know, the prospect of trying to rebuild your life in a, a country where you don't speak the language, you don't understand you know, the structures and rules that apply, is it, going to be a pretty daunting prospect, right? I mean, thirdly, they, they think they're coming somewhere where they human rights are going to be respected and I mean as hard as that notion is to believe right now it, it, it you know it's something that people still hold on to and then finally that they're, they're, they're traveling this way because there's a lack of safety in the countries that they're, they're traveling through many of our clients have traveled through Libya for example and they've endured unimaginable horrors and then they've spent time in Italy or France where they've been you know subjected to racist attacks to police brutality to homelessness fundamentally you don't stop moving until you're safe and and that's not more than just avoiding persecution it's about all of these factors that come together to offer people, um, you know, a sanctuary that is that is meaningful, that's going to be sustainable. Rosa, the bill has a statement at its head, which is a, quite an unusual one to, to see. It's made under Section 19 of the Human Rights Act, and it's a statement from the Home Secretary saying that she's unable to say that the provisions of the bill are compatible with the Human Rights Act. What's what's that all about, what, and what's the significance? Um, so the, the idea is under the Human Rights Act 1998 that, that ministers say that in their opinion the, on the legal advice they've received, legislation which is passed subsequent to that uh, complies in their view with the Human Rights Act. Uh, the Home Secretary was at, was explained she was unable to reach that conclusion because there was more than 50% chance that the provisions of this bill, uh, if passed, uh, would not be so compatible. Bear in mind also that Section 3 of the Human Rights Act, very important interpretive section, of course, uh, is disapplied to this legislation. Some people have said, well, it doesn't matter because Section 3 is simply the statutory analogue of the common law duty, uh, principle of legality. 
I, I don't agree with that. I think Section 3 is a much more powerful tool. The fact that that doesn't apply to the legislation uh, suggests that uh, very strongly that, that the intention is not to achieve compatibility with human rights. There are at least three areas which uh, scream out as incompatible. The provisions on trafficking seem uh, totally contrary to Article 4 of the European Convention on Human Rights. That's uh, the provision which forbids uh, slavery, servitude, forced or compulsory labour and human trafficking. It's contrary to a, a Supreme Court decision, a case called MS Pakistan. It's also contrary to Article 3, potentially in terms of the uh, very tight time limits that are provided for uh, substantiating a claim. It's uh, very arguably contrary to Article 14, read with Article 3, because people who are caught by these provisions are singled out for inferior uh, judicial protection. So it's not surprising that that statement has been made. Uh, people have said, and I, I think I agree, that it's a bit low to put it at 51% or more than 50% chance that provisions of this bill would be incompatible with human rights. I think it's very clear that they are. And similarly with the Refugee Convention? Oh, yes, of course. I mean, the, the, the it, you said earlier, I described last year's bill, became an act, of course, as the greatest uh, assault that the UK had ever seen on refugee law. It was. Uh, because it, that created two tiers of uh, refugee status based upon whether or not you'd come directly or indirectly, broadly speaking. And it said that if you'd come here without entry clearance and arrived and claimed asylum, uh, you were committing criminal offence punishable by up to uh, four years imprisonment. This says, no, <laughs> dispenses with uh, criminal offence and so forth, although... Obviously, that, that, that stays on the statute book. But additionally, you just can't claim. You, you can't make a claim. The, the, the Secretary of State cannot, is not allowed to consider your claim. So we must remove you. So we've got the bill that is irreconcilable with both our obligations under the Human Rights Act and the Refugee Convention. So we've got the kind of legal clash. Is there a reality clash as well, though, Sheila? I mean, this, if, if implemented, this bill would require detention of thousands of people in detention centres. It would require removal of thousands of people to third-party countries. The only one we have an agreement with at the moment is Rwanda. Could this, if enacted, actually work? No, I couldn't. I think this is largely a rhetorical exercise to make this bill, but you know, we couldn't detain anything like the numbers that this bill envisages. I mean, putting aside, for the moment, the vast human cost of, of indefinite detention as it's proposed in this bill. I mean, it foundly incredibly expensive. If everyone who arrived on a boat last year was detained for 28 days automatically on arrival with no opportunity for immigration bail or judicial review, we would be looking at detaining around 9,000 people, I think, at any one time, which is over four times the current capacity of the detention estate. And detaining someone costs around about £150 a day, according to the Home Office. And they're predicting what, around 65,000 people crossing the channel this year. So we're looking at detaining them for 28 days would cost around, I'm not doing maths in my head, I do actually have this in front of me, £219 million, right? And that's before the cost of building new capacity that's being factored in. But, you know, importantly, right, the bill covers more than just those who are coming by small boats, right? So it, it, covers, it covers potentially anyone 
who's arriving irregularly, who's trying to arrive you know, without um, leave to enter or remain, anyone who hasn't travelled through, um, uh, who hasn't come directly, sorry. You know, we could be looking at a much bigger population than just those who come across, come across on small boats. And all of this hangs on two things, I guess. So either the government's ability to remove people, and we, you've touched on this already, you know, could we send people to third countries? I mean, well, look, I mean, no, we, we don't have the removal agreements, we don't have the return agreements that are required. So she's placed a duty on herself to return people, and she's not going to be able to fulfil that. You know, we've seen there is, you know, there is some really worrying stuff in the bill. For example, the list of safe countries, which now includes Albania. And of course, Albania is there because Albanians were the highest nationality applying for asylum and crossing the channel 2022. But the initial grant rate for Albanian women was around 85%. And for Albanian children, it was 87%. Now, under this bill, those claims wouldn't have been processed. They, they won't be processed. And so those individuals are going to be at very high risk returns to Albania. And of course, for nationals of other country, they'll only be able to remove them to one of the 57 countries that's listed in the schedule to the bill, unless, of course, that country is their own um, country of origin. Now, that means, of course, that an Afghan can't be returned to Afghanistan or a, or a Syrian to Syria. But as we've already said, you know, the, current, the, the UK only has a removal agreement for some country nationals with one country that's on that list. That's Rwanda. And that agreement is, you know, is stuck in litigation and that's likely to continue until the end of this year. And of course, even if, you know, even if it does get going, Rwanda only has the capacity to take around 200 people. And that's, you know, regardless of the assertions made by the Home Secretary that that's an uncapped scheme, you know, Rwanda isn't going to you know, suddenly experience some mass expansion of its um, of, of either its refugee protection capacity or its reception capacity. So she is going to be under a duty to remove tens of thousands of people. And this bill really does absolutely nothing to suggest that she's going to be successful. And she can legislate all she likes. But if she doesn't have the removal agreements in place, she can't remove people. So here's the, here's the kind of interesting question that flows from this. I mean, there are serious lawyers and serious policy advisors at the Home Office and within government. So it is obvious that she would have been advised both that it's legally doesn't work in terms of our international law obligations or under the Human Rights Act. She's undoubtedly been advised this does not work practically. So what's behind this? I mean, is this an attempt to define a wedge issue with Labour on either um, immigration or on the Human Rights Act? Is it um, an attempt to um, set up a clash with Strasbourg to, so that we have our membership of the European Convention as an election issue? Is it just Bravman wanting to champion a cause she knows she's going to lose because it helps her personally, politically? What's going on? Sheila, start with you and then, and then, and then ask Raza. Yeah, I think it's a combination of those things. I think the government is definitely playing the long game here with an eye on the general election. Um, it, it knows that it can't win on a competence platform in state of the economy, the NHS, the extent of strike, you know, and it, and it also doesn't have like a compelling personality to, to, to carry them through the next election. So it's deploying you know, the classic playbook favoured by you know, populist authoritarian regimes the world over to demonise and dehumanise, you know, a marginalised group, deny them their universal rights, drive the cultural wedge even deeper, 
in order to appeal to part of the electorate that the Conservative Party is is most concerned about and believes is is most kind of motivated by these issues. And then, of course, you know, the Act is going when it, when it passes, it's going to trigger extensive and lengthy litigation, right? And now that's going to provide the government with one of their you know, beloved enemies in the form of lefty lawyers. So they can argue that, you know, that those lawyers are obstructing the implementation of what would otherwise be, you know, an impactful policy approach. And even if the litigation goes, go, if the litigation goes as far as Strasbourg and is successful, they can, they, you know, they can run the next election campaign on a platform of withdrawing from the, the European Convention on Human Rights. And that's gamble, right? I don't, I don't think there is kind of, I don't think the whole of the Conservative Party is persuaded on that issue by any means. I think that's going to be a very clear dividing line as this bill goes through Parliament. Let me ask one of those lefty lawyers then um, for his view on it. Raza, what's behind all of this? Oh, I'm going to take the fifth about whether or not I, I, I fulfil that description. Um, look, uh, when you've got people as diverse as religious leaders, the Law Society, the EU, Carolyn Noakes, the ex-immigration minister, the Spectator magazine, uh, saying that this isn't a proper or appropriate policy, certainly not a lawful approach. Uh, by lawful, I mean having... You know, it rips up the Refugee Convention, it rips up human rights, but it rips up our constitutional arrangements as well with the ouster clauses, Henry VIII clauses that we talked about. And you've got everybody describing this as unparalleled cruelty, cruelty without purpose, as profoundly damaging to the UK standing uh, internationally. Uh, Mrs May talked about this uh, yesterday. Then I think the inference is pretty clear that there are other... Uh, objectives at play, uh, other objective, uh, electoral objectives uh, at play. I agree with what Sheila says. Well, look, let's just hope that the combination of those sources, of, the, of those sources, the work of Sheila that you and your colleagues are doing and the work that no doubt Raza and um, other colleagues will be doing if this does become law, help push back and make a difference from those who are going to suffer from this most, which are of course those who are fleeing persecution and trying to escape from conditions to most of us would be unimaginable. Can I thank you both for joining? Look, we're going to have another podcast at some stage down the line outside the kind of acuteness of dealing with an immigration bill, but just to kind of talk about what the future for immigration and asylum and how we kind of meet the balance between complying with decency, complying with international obligations, but also dealing with the huge challenges that face us, not least through climate change and mass migration in a way that brings people with us um, on that debate. But that's one for the future. Thanks both so much um, for being with us today. Thanks, Richard. Well, that's it for this edition of the Rule of Law podcast. As I said at the beginning, we'll be back very shortly with an episode about the United Kingdom Supreme Court and looking at criticisms that have been made as to whether or not it's taking a rightward or political shift. And we'll be joined to discuss that by Professor Connor Gerty of the London School of Economics and of Matrix Chambers. But until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>